Hello, thank you for listening to this sermon from our Revive service. We hope it helps you learn more about God and allow you to grow closer to Him and in your faith. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Daniel, please, we'll be in Daniel chapter 8. My name is Aaron Varner. I have the great privilege of being lead pastor here, senior pastor, and uh, I'm so glad that you've joined us as we have our desire and our prayer is that we would worship the Lord here together today and that we would be encouraged, encouraged from his word, that we would learn and grow from it, and uh, excited about digging into Daniel chapter 8 here this morning. If you haven't, I want to encourage you throughout your week this week to read Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 is pretty cool, all kinds of cool things in it. I'm not going to tell you about it, you read it, okay? So that way next week when you walk in here, hopefully you'll come back and join us. Uh, But you'll have a little bit better understanding, Uh, be familiar with the text, and so that way you're not walking in cold turkey. And if you have opportunity, why don't you read the whole book of Daniel, and that'll give you a little bit better understanding of what Daniel is trying to say and what he's uh, trying to communicate. Um, We come to this chapter in Daniel chapter 8, and uh, again, we're in the, um, we're done with the easy section what I call the easy section, the first six verses are pretty historical. And and so we're in that historical where it's more narrative, right? Daniel's just writing about what's going on. Then we get in chapter seven and uh, and it becomes this talk about what is to come as prophecy. And so chapter seven, it's hard. You have these four beasts and all that comes out of them and what takes place. Um, And then, uh, and then we see a fourth kingdom that arises, and that's the everlasting kingdom. Um, now we're in Daniel 8, and we continue in, in this prophetic word, um, and uh, there's a lot in here. And so as we walk through this, let me encourage you, don't, don't be discouraged, all right? Don't be disheartened. If you don't get it all, that's okay. Uh, I don't know that I have it all, all right? I'm, I'm still learning and growing. I do have a little bit better of confidence of what I believe um, because of the amount of time and study that I put into it. And I encourage you to do that as well. Remember, prophecy isn't something that we should look at that should just scare us away and say, oh, I don't understand that. He's talking about these animals today. He's going to talk about uh, a ram and and a goat. All right. And I, what is what in the world? Like, I don't understand this. And so you, we just say, ah, I don't need to understand it. I'm just going to run to the New Testament. Tell me what Jesus says. Well, while that's good, all scripture is inspired by God. Right. And is profitable for us. And so as we dig into it, one of the great blessings of prophecy is, is when we see God in his prophetic word sharing and and, and showing and then when we see on the, on the flip side of that, it being fulfilled, that should strengthen our faith even more. And it really gives us a defense of, of our God and who we believe in. And one of the greatest defenses of the word of God is to be able to look at this prophecy, especially in chapter 8 here of Daniel, and to say, I believe that this was prophecy given years, 200 to 400 years before it was actually happening and it came true. And to be able to share with with somebody that doesn't believe that the word of God is true, to be able to say, can you explain then why God would give this word to Daniel and then 200 years later, it happened exactly how Daniel wrote it down. That should strengthen our faith. That should encourage us as we walk with the Lord, but also in our testimony and as we live it out. We'll have three points at the very end for application. Let's dig into the text, all right? And as we get ready to dig in the text, I'm going to have you stand with me, if you would, as we read it. Would you stand in Daniel chapter 8? We'll read through the full entirety of the first 27 verses, and then we'll go back and dig into it. Daniel 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Alua canal, and I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. 
I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes and came to, to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram and he was enraged against him. And he struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and he trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came a four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, towards the glorious land. It grew great even to the hosts of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and it trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And the host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offerings because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offerings and the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Ula, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and he made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Meda and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horns between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, and place of which four other arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. At, at the latter ends of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king bold of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, but he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. The great part about this text as we read through it is we have this vision in the beginning and then we actually get clarification. Isn't it nice to get clarification? When my wife asked me to do something and I don't understand, to have clarification is really important. Because the way that I do something may be different than the way she wants it done. All right? Those of you who are married, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When we see Daniel here and he has this vision, he's, he's, he's concerned about what he's seeing. And we'll get into that a little bit. But we see in verse 15, he says, I sought to understand it. And so he wanted to know, what does this mean? 
And it's beautiful for us because we have both the vision and then we have explanation that helps us with, with this. So it's not like we're going to be far out there, like just guessing and hoping that something is right here. The beauty of Daniel 8 is we can, we can pretty much account for everything that's going to take place in the future. We can understand that because of what we have before us. Let's dig in. Remember, early on when I first started, I talked about the language, right? Hopefully you understand that and remember that. Early on, I talked about how the first two chapters are written in Hebrew, and then it switches switches to Aramaic, all right? Now we're going back, and this chapter in Daniel chapter 8, it switches back to Hebrew. There's a lot of great theologians who will uh, suggest the reason why. I believe it's important for us to understand here because I think in chapter 8 and and through the rest of this chapter, it, it is a call to the Hebrew nation for them to understand about their God and what he's going to do. And so while it was about the, the Gentile nations in chapter 3 verse and chapter 7, now it's this call for Israel as they're hearing this and understanding it, that they would see their God working in the midst of such chaos and trouble and hardship. And so from this point on, we see there's a change, all right, in the original language that we have recorded. I think that's important for us to see. The time and the setting. We see in verse 1 that this is the third year of King Belshazzar. All right, and so this takes place between chapter 4 and chapter 5 earlier. All right, and that would put us roughly in a time frame of 550 B.C. So Daniel's recording this. He sees this vision in 550 B.C. in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar. Daniel is around the age of 70 at this point. Okay. And so as, you, as we walk through this, understand that here's Daniel around the age of 70. He's already gone through King Nebuchadnezzar. He's seen some uh, uh, different, different things that are arising. He's in the midst of this Belshazzar. The end is coming of Belshazzar's reign. Again, where we see this is between chapter 4 and chapter 5. Chapter 5 is when Belshazzar has has this, the vision is up on the wall and, and the hand is writing. And that very day, his, his kingdom is taken away from him. All right. And the Medes and the Persians are coming. All right. So that gives us context of, of as Daniel has this vision and, and helps us to see where is that setting at, the timing of that. Now the vision, the setting is in Susa, the citadel. As Daniel has this vision, all right, as he's looking and where he is placed, he is placed uh, similar to where we would say that John was, okay? In Revelation, we see that God takes John and, and takes him from the Isle of Patmos and places him to, in, in a place of heaven where he can see what is happening. That's where we see here in this prophecy where God has removed Daniel from Babylon. And in this vision, he is in Susa, the citadel. All right, this is the enemy's, uh, one of their strategic places, all right? This is the Persian, all right, which right now, remember where Daniel is, all right? At this point, he's having this dream. Belshazzar's there. He, he, he's running and Babylon still in charge, all right? The Persians, they've been battling, having little battles through these years, but Babylon has always come out on top. And so now Daniel is transferred to the enemy's capital or the enemy's uh, significant place uh, of, of their territory. And when he's there, it can't, we can't help but to think of what's to come. As we look at other texts in the Bible, what do we know about Susa the citadel? Well, we also read in Esther 1-2 about how the setting there in Esther 1-2 is there's Esther in the royal throne in the Susa, the citadel. The king is there, and ultimately Esther will become queen, and she is going to be where? where are, where's the throne of the king and queen at? This very place, all right? We also read about it in Nehemiah, Nehemiah 1-1. He says, I was in Susa, the citadel. 
And so here are two other significant Bible characters that are going to reference and talk about this real city. And so Daniel is taken prophetically ahead of time in this vision, and he sees the enemies that have taken over, all right, and he's placed there in the capital. He's at the canal. This canal was, was hand dug in order to provide water um, to, uh, to the Medes and to the Persians there. All right. Let's dig in now. Verse 3, we see there is a ram. All right. A ram. I raised my eyes and saw and behold a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. As we look at history... Again, we know this is the Medes and the Persians. We know the Medes started off and they were great, but then the Persians came behind them and became even greater. That's why you have the two horns. And while both were great, one was higher than the other and the higher one came after the first. It speaks of the Medes and the Persians. Two horns, both high. It references back to the bear, right? Remember in chapter 7, the bear, the Medes and the Persians, the bear is kind of a lopsided bear. He's, he's leaning to one side. He's higher on one side than the other. Why? Because the Medes and the Persians. The Persians are greater than the Medes. It is interesting too, when we look at this, that the, and I'm not going to get into this. I do not believe in Zodiac signs. It is part of history. And part of the history that shows us though, is the Zodiac sign for the Medes and the Persians of this time was a ram. Isn't that interesting? Aries, A-R-I-E-S. And again, we're going to see that even with the goat, that the zodiac sign of the Greeks uh, were, was this goat Capricorn. Half goat and half fish. Uh, again, it just shows us in this prophecy, God isn't just like throwing these weird things out there that don't make any sense. They all tie in. There's all a connection. So we see this ram, and he has these two horns, and he goes westward, northward, southward. All right, He defeats what takes place. Is we, what we see here is that ultimately Bab Babylon is going to be defeated, and the Medes and Persians are going to spread out, and they're going to start to take even more land than even what Babylon had. And again, through history, if I showed you a diagram, uh, which I decided not to because you can do that, and I don't want to get you hung up on a map. I want to show you the word. You do your study. You do your research. But if you look on a map and you see what the Medes and the Persians and what they conquered, they had more land than even Babylon had. They conquered exactly what our text tells us here as they go northward and they go westward and southward. And it says, no beast could stand before him and there was no one who could rescue from its power. He did as he pleased and he became great. So the Medes and the Persians become great. Their great kingdom. Verse 5 says, as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. Goats are pretty cool, but I don't know that this vision would have alarmed me as well. All right. You see this goat. All right. And this goat is just flying across, not touching the ground. All right. And yet it shows us this picture of what we saw in chapter 7 about this next kingdom that happens after the Medes and the Persians. It's the Greek nation. And, and as we see, it was described as the leopard with four wings because it was so swift. It was so quick. And as we know from history, again, the Medes and the Persians, they had a few little battles with the Greek nation, but the Greeks could never conquer them. They could never overcome them until... One of great strength came. And so we see this male goat. And, uh, and let's keep going here. Verse 6. He came to the ram with the two horns. Which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him with his powerful wrath. Alright. Uh, again history tells us that the, the, the Greeks were not happy with the Medes and Persians. And so when this king in this kingdom that arises. This, this uh, goat is making a run at at this ram, all right, they're mad and they're upset. Again, history tells us that they were upset because of what had transpired and what had taken place in the history and that they could not overcome this kingdom. And so finally it come to this place 
and it says that there was a little horn, right? I saw him come close, verse 7, I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. It says the goat became exceedingly great, and, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. Remember, when we look at this, verse 5, it tells us the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. What that tells us is he, they had a great leader, all right? And this leader was somebody that we've already talked about. We saw in chapter 7, um, but we see it here again, and that's Alexander the Great, all right? Um, he comes from the west across the full, whole face of the earth without touching the ground. Uh, this this notable horn, that's what that term means. A uh, notable horn between his eyes was Alexander the Great. He began his reign in 336, taking over for his dad. And he studied, he had a great wisdom, and he's one of the great generals of all time. He studied under Aristotle. And yet, as he was great, and he ran at the ram with powerful wrath, meaning to be hot. That term there, with powerful wrath, means to be hot in Hebrew, all right? The Greeks had had enough, and they said, we're going to go do this. And Alexander the Great led these great battles, and within a short period of time, in just three years, uh, they had overtaken the Medes and the Persians, which, which today we, we, we have seen in our modern warfare, uh, a few jets go in, and you take care of the battle, and you're like, hmm, that was the first battle I saw as a kid, was uh, the Persian Gulf. I remember being in middle school, and the fear was that gas prices were going to go to $5 at that time. I still remember it like it was yesterday. We, I was in band, and I remember my band director being so scared that gas was going to get to $5. Crazy what you remember, right? What's my wife's anniversary or her birthday and our anniversary? I don't know. No, but I, I do know. I'm just teasing you. When we think about this, though, that... That battle, we flew a few jets in, we dropped a few bombs, and boom, it was there. We also know, again, modern warfare, there's a war that's still taking place right now over in Ukraine. As Russia and Ukraine, these, these countries are battling, and the end, we don't, we don't, it doesn't seem like there's going to be an end right now. It's hard to see an ending to that. And these, these times... For an army to take over the way that Alexander the Great took over was unheard of. And it speaks to the prophecy of what it was going to look like. That it was going to be this leopard with four wings. That it was going to be like this goat that wasn't even touching the ground. It was going so fast. And that the wrath was there. That these people were so hot. See, Alexander conquered so much and so many he just would have kept going until his men finally, you read about it, where they finally were ready to revolt against him uh, because they wanted to go home. And so finally he's like, all right, let's go home. These people wanted to conquer, and Alexander the Great was a great general. He was a great leader. The goat became exceedingly great. There is a story of Josephus. Josephus records for us, and again, you can, you can um, do some digging on it. It's really, really pretty cool when you start again, tying the Bible into history and how that goes together. But Josephus records about this encounter at that time with the high priest uh, of Jada. His name was Jada, and he has this encounter with Alexander the Great. And the encounter that he records is uh, Jada was told to wear, by God, to wear all white. And as he goes out of the temple uh, at that time, as he goes out and he meets Alexander the Great, Alexander the Great is coming to take over, and when he does, Alexander the Great falls and bows down before the priests. All of his generals have no idea what's going on. They're like, we've never seen this. Alexander the Great doesn't bow to anybody. See, Alexander the Great is told that he had a dream and that God would appear before him in all white. And so here was God once again protecting his nation and his people and while the goat became exceedingly great, we know that God was still caring for his people and his nation. When he became strong, it says the great horn broke. That's when Alexander the Great died on June 
323 BC at the age of 32. What's interesting though, the world has already started to become Hellenized. It became um, um, uh, impacted by Alexander the Great and his leading. So much so that there became a common language that started to begin to be spread. And that common language would ultimately be called Koinoa Greek, which would lead to what we have today, which is the recording of our Greek New Testament, Koinoa Greek. And it stems back to here when the world was becoming Hellenized by Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great dies. And in the midst of that, four other horns, notable horns, uh, arise towards the four winds of heaven. And so these four winds of heaven, again, it shows us the broadness of these territories. We know that these are four generals. Um, Alexander the Great had hoped his two sons would become king, but they were both killed. All right. And so we have these other four generals that arose that led the Greek nation during this time. Out of the four comes one. Let's look at it. Verse nine. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. The glorious land there is Palestine, okay? Palestine or Judah. We see this term a few times throughout scripture, all right? And that's what Palestine means. Palestine in its meaning means glorious land. And so we see here a reference that, that this one horn will take over these different territories. As this one horn arises, we know from history um, that this is Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. All right, Epiphanes means um, great, uh, a great leader. Uh, others called him the madman. Epimenes, they would change that. And I'm going to tell you why here in just a moment. But let's look and see who he is. And let me just remind you that Daniel is recording this 200 years before it actually takes place, which is amazing. There are some, some liberal theologians who today believe that Daniel didn't write the last part of this book, which is crazy because... How can you say that when you see this recorded for us today? All right. So let's dig in a little bit deeper here. We see this one horn, verse 9. I'll read it again. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. And it became great even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the places of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of the transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will, it will act and prosper. Whew, what does all this mean? Well, what we see here is when you look at the host or the stars, that's a reference. It can mean angelic me beings. But it also, in the Bible, can also talk about mighty men or people who are the saints. And so when you look at the host, that could be a reference to the saints at that time. All right. What do we know about this Antiochus IV? He was a madman. If you do some history and you start reading who this man was, he, he, he was bad. Okay. He's right up there with our modern day, what we would call Hitler. And I think he was even worse when you start reading this. He massacred over 80,000 Jews. He enslaved over 40,000 of them. He destroyed Jerusalem in 168. In 167, um, he, he despised the Jews so much that in 167 BC, he offered a pig upon the sacrifice, which for us, again, in, in, in North America, it's hard for us to understand the significance of this because we don't offer sheep and goats and, and, and all that. But as you read, and that's part of why we need to understand the Old Testament, okay, and even understand what the law was teaching and what it was showing them. Remember, the law is there to help Israel be distinct and set apart from any other nation. They were to be God's nation, 
And they were going to do things differently because God wanted them to be holy, to be distinct, to be set apart from all the other nations. And part of this was the act of sacrifice, that they were to bring their sacrifices before God, acknowledging their sin, acknowledging who God was as their creator and maker. And as this ruler despised the Jews so much, not only did he kill them, not only did he take the word that they had, all right, the Pentateuch, the law, he would take that and he would ban it. Not only would he ban them from reading it in the scrolls, but he would burn them up. Anytime he got a chance to get his hands on something, he would burn it because he despised the Jews. He wanted them never to last. And so he offers this pig where they were there to worship the one true holy God. He said, let me show you who's king. And he takes this pig, which was forbidden amongst the law. Do you know that? You know the Jews weren't allowed to eat bacon and sausage, all that, like no pork chops, all right? It's unclean. Again, part of that purpose of God wanting to make sure his nation was distinct and set apart. He said, this king, King Antioch, I'm going to sacrifice a pig on your altar. There's nothing worse that could have been done in the face of their worship of the true and living God. He did this in 167 BC. He even went to the point where he outlawed circumcision. We have some of this recorded for us in, in some text that we would call in the intertestimonial section. All right. We're now in a time, all right, during this time of uh, Antiochus, where God is silent. All right. This is between Malachi and Matthew. This is a period of time where God is quiet. All right. But there are some other historical writings. Some would include them in their Bible. We don't believe that. I don't believe that they're inspired by God, but I do believe that they're historical readings. Maccabees, second Maccabees is one of those. All right. So I'm not preaching from second Maccabees this morning. So hear me very clearly. I do not believe that second Maccabees is the holy inspired word of God. Do you understand enough disclaimer? So now you're like, well, what does second Maccabees say? It's good for you to read those so you can understand. And some of it, as you read it, you're like, yeah, I can understand why this isn't part of the Bible. It is interesting as we read from 2 Maccabees chapter 7. I believe this is written again during this time and it helps us to see what's transpiring. Here's a story. And let me warn you. I want to caution you. Um, it is a little graphic. All right. I debated on do I say this or do I not. I know there's little hearers here. I think it's real. And I think we're headed into that time. So I don't want to take away the innocence of your children. But I do want to read to you what it looked like so that you can understand what Daniel is feeling and what he's thinking as he's seeing this vision and what is to come. Second Maccabees 7 says it also happened that seven brothers with their mother were arrested and tortured with whips and scourges by the king to force them to eat pork in violation of God's law. One of the brothers speaking for the other said, what do you expect to learn by questioning us, we are ready to die rather than transgress the law of our ancestors. At that, the king, in a fury, gave orders to have the pans and the cauldrons heated. These were quickly heated, and he gave orders to cut out the tongue of the one who had spoken for the others, to scalp him and to cut off his hands and his feet, while the rest of his brothers and his mothers looked on. When he was completely maimed, but still breathing, the king ordered them to carry him to the fire and to fry him. As a cloud of the smoke spread from the pan, the brothers and their mothers encouraged one another to die nobly with these words. The Lord is looking on us and truly has compassion on us. As Moses declared in his song, when he openly bore witness saying, and God will have compassion on his servants. After the first brother had died in this manner, they brought the second to be made sport of. After tearing off the skin and the hair of his head, they asked him, will you eat the pork rather than have your body tortured limb by limb? Answering in the language of his ancestors, he said, never. So he, in turn, suffered the same tortures as the first. While his last breath, he said, you accursed, 
you are depriving us of this present life, but the king of the universe will rise us up to live again forever because we are dying for his laws. After him, the third suffered their cruel sport. He put forth his tongue at once when told to do so, and he bravely stretched out his hands. And as he spoke these noble words, it was from heaven that I received these. For the sake of his laws, I disregard them. From him, I hope to receive them again. Even the king and his attendants marveled at the young man's spirit because he regarded his suffering as nothing. After he had died, they tortured and maltreated the fourth brother in the same way. When he was near death, he said, it is my choice to die at the hands of mortals with the hope that God will restore me to life. But for you, there will be no resurrection of life. Then the next brought forth the fifth brother and maltreated him. Looking at the king, he said, mortal, mortal, though you are, you have power over human beings. So you do as you please, but do not think that our nation is forsaken by God. Only wait and you will see his great power will torment you and your descendants. After him, they brought the sixth brother when he was about to die. And he said, have no vain illusions. We suffer these things on our own account because we have sinned against our God. That is why such shocking things have happened. Do not think then that you will go unpunished for having dared to fight against God. Most admirably and worthy of everlasting remembrance was the mother who seen her seven sons perish in a single day, bore it courageously because of her hope in the Lord. Filled with a noble spirit that stirred her womanly reason with manly emotion, she exhorted each one of them in the language of their ancestors with these words. I do not know how you came to be in my womb. It is not I who gave you breath and life, nor was it I who arranged the elements you are made of. Therefore, since it is the creator of the universe who shaped the beginning of humankind and brought about the origin of everything, he, in his mercy, will give you back both breath and life because you now disregard yourselves for the sake of his law. Antioch, suspecting insult in her words, thought she was being ridiculed. As the youngest brother was still alive, the king appealed to him, not with mere words, but with promises on oath to make him rich and happy if he would abandon his ancestral customs. He would make him his friend and entrust him with high places, a high office. When the youth paid no attention to him at all, the king appealed to the mother, urging her to advise her boy to save his life. After he had urged her for a long time, she agreed to persuade her son. She leaned over close to him and in derision of cruel tyrants, she said in their native son language, son, have pity on me who carried you in my womb for nine months, nursed you for three years, brought you up, educated and support you to your present age. I beg you, child, look at the heavens and the earth. See all that is in them. Then you will know that God did not make them out of existing things in the same way humankind came into existence. Do not be afraid of this executioner. But be worthy of your brothers and accept death so that in a time of mercy I may receive you again with your brothers. She had scarcely finished speaking when the youth said, What is the delay? I will not obey the king's command. I obey the command of the law given to our ancestors through Moses. But you who have contrived every kind of evil for the Hebrews will not escape the hand of God. We indeed are suffering because of our sin. Though for a little while our living Lord has been angry, correcting and chastising us, he will again be reconciled with his servants. But you wretched, most vile mortals, do not in your insolence boil, boil yourself with unfounded hopes as you raise the hand against the children of heaven. You have might, might yet not escape the judgment of the almighty and all-seeing God. Our brothers, after enduring brief pain, have drunk of never-failing life under God's covenant. But you, the judgment of God, shall receive punishments for your arrogance. Like my brothers, I offer up my body and my life for our ancestral laws, imploring God to show mercy soon to our nation and by afflictions and blows to make you confess that he alone is God. Through me and my brothers, may there be an end to the wrath of the Almighty that has justly fallen on our whole nation." At that, the king became enraged and treated him even worse than the others since he bitterly resented the boy's contempt. Thus, he too died undefiled, putting all his trust in the Lord. Last of all, after her sons, the mother was put to death. It's hard for me to read through all that. What would you do 
this little horn becomes great. And part of it is God's judgment upon his people because they abandon their faith and their trust in him. But Israel is still God's chosen nation. The Jews are still his chosen people. And while Antiochus IV does all of this evil, what does the text tell us? Verse 13, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering and the transgression that makes desolate and the giving over the sanctuary and hosts to be trampled underfoot? Meaning, how long is this going to last that this guy is going to continue to disregard what you have set up, God? Verse 14, and he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. What's awesome is what we see here is these 2,300 days, there's two different views and whichever one you fall on, that's okay. I'll tell you what mine is in a moment. If you take uh, 2,300 days and you divide it by two because there was both Evening and morning sacrifices. There was two sacrifices each day. And so some will take that and, and divide it by two to, for that to be a day. And so that's 2,300 sacrifices or twice a day. And roughly that would give you December 167 B.C. to December of 164 B.C. when we see that the temple is recommitted before God. 164 B.C. is a crucial date. We know that. It's very clear. December of 164, when it's reconsecrated. That's where the Jews um, celebrate the, the Festival of Lights, or what we would call today what? Hanukkah. A really cool thing. Let me pause here for just a second. Every time the nation of Israel is, is tried to be destroyed, they have like a celebration. If you start to look at it, right? So when you, when you look at the history, go back to Esther, right? What's the festival there as Nahum tries to kill them, all right? It's Purnum, right? So they have this festival where they're going to celebrate God's provision. We see it here. What's really cool is we see, even in history, uh, just not that long ago, when, when Hitler tries to take away the Jewish nation, what takes place in the aftermath of that? What happens on May 14th, 1948? Israel has their, some of their land back. They become a nation again. In the midst of all the chaos, when you look at history, and it proves God's people are his chosen one. And he loves them. He will protect them. And he will provide for them. God is faithful to his word, is he not? I hope you're getting that. The second option, coming back now, uh, is to look at these 2300 days as six years and four months. And from 170 BC to 164 December, it would take from the moment that the high priest is murdered, all right, to this when the temple uh, is reconsecrated, all right? During that time, it sets up perfectly with what we would say is six years and four months. That's what I hold to, whether you go back to when, when Jerusalem was uh, ransacked or when the sacrifice was on the temple uh, or when you look at when the murder of the priest is, we know that there is specific time, and I believe that specific time is clearly communicated and then clearly taken place. 2,300 days. It's really cool. What we see, though, about this is that while he prospers, we see something different as, or in addition to uh, this, this one horn that becomes great. Jump forward with me to verse 24. All right? His power shall be great, but not by his own power. 
and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and he shall destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. Again, that's where I believe the mighty men and the saints where we saw earlier. I don't think he's taking stars and can rearrange stars or throw stars to the earth. I don't think he sent up rockets to destroy them and bring them down, okay? I believe this text helps us to see these are mighty men and the people who are the saints that he is destroying. What we see here, again, is this destruction and his power is great. But notice his power doesn't come from himself, which helps us to see once again say Satan's power and his effect on the earth. All right. And, and, and we're going to see here in just a little bit. We're going to talk about why that is significant. All right. Um, verse 25, by his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken. But by no human hand, when he goes into Jerusalem, when he tries, when he does defile the, the sacrifice, what takes place? He becomes, history records for us, he becomes exceedingly uh, sick. And he, and he will die, not because of somebody else killing him, which fulfills scripture here. Again, not by human hands. He's not going to die by human hands. Antiochus dies because God struck him. With illness, and he died. Some will say he went insane. Isn't it awesome? Isn't it awesome how we read scripture and how God fulfills it? Uh, verse 26, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. What we see here, there are a couple different ways that you can view chapter 8. One is from a historical view to say, hey, this is all history and we see it fulfilled. Another is a historical futuristic, all right, that Antioch, Antiochus is uh, verses 9 through 14. And then the Antichrist is verses 23 through 25. I don't hold to that because I don't think that we're tearing apart. I believe to this third type, and that's uh, typological view, meaning this, just as Noah's flood in Genesis 6 and 7 became a picture of baptism in 1 Peter chapter 3, we see in Hebrews chapter 9 that the Passover became a picture, a type of Christ's death and the sacrifice that he was needed. In the same way, we see Antiochus become this villainous, awful person who is led by Satan, given the power by Satan to do these things, not of his own. It is a picture and a type of the Antichrist that is to come. In the same way that Antiochus did, so the Antichrist will rise up and do these things. When we look at this, it is the type of what is to come. It's fulfilled in Antiochus, but we know the Antichrist is coming. What we see here is the little horn in Daniel 8 is different than the little horn in Daniel 7. Daniel 7, the little horn is the Antichrist. Daniel 8, the little horn is Antiochus the fourth. But the, the little horn of Daniel 8 references back to Daniel 7 and what that little horn will also look like. Whew. All that. I entitled today, When You Feel Sick. You're like, where did you get that from? Maybe you feel nauseous right now. All right. Look at the last verse here of our text. Verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome and I lay sick. For some days. Daniel becomes so overwhelmed by what he has seen. That he is just sick. And he lays in bed. Overcome with great emotion. Remember Daniel at this time. He's roughly 70 years old. All right. He's just not some young whippersnapper. That doesn't want to get out of bed. And do the things that in responsibility he needs to do. He's an older man who knows he has great responsibility and yet is so overwhelmed by this vision 
that he can't even get out of bed. I don't want to make a point of it, but I just want to help you to see there are times in our lives that when we see things and, and, and it, it has its effect on us. Because we wrestle with the flesh and we struggle because we can't see everything crystal clear. And I just want you to know that's okay. It's okay to wrestle with it. And it's okay to have times where you just may say, I don't get it. Or you feel sick. What we do see here, though, three things that I want you to take away as reminders. Number one is all scripture is truth and is God's plan. I feel like I'm saying it over and over again, but I can't, I can't tell you enough this. All scripture is truth. Do you believe that? Do you believe that this is God's word for you to read and study and to obey? This is how we define what truth is. And if you define truth any way apart from this, you are wrong. We can't come up with truth on our own. All scripture is truth and it's God's plan. We see God's plan laid out here. God's plan is always going to take place. You can't stop it. I can't stop it. Satan can't stop it. Isn't that awesome? It's 100% accurate 100% of the time. Psalm 119, verse 140. I love what the New Living Translation says. I'm going to read it for you. It says, your promises have been thoroughly tested, and that is why I love them so much. Think about that. Through your life, I'm sure you've seen God's word tested to see if it's true. Isn't it great to know that it's, trust, it's tested and it's true through all the generations, through all the thousands of years? Mm. And then I love what is recorded in Psalm 119, verse 160. Where it says this, the sum of your word is truth. Daniel used it last chapter when he was talking about his vision, the same word, the sum, the total amount. Listen, look, the sum, the total amount of your word equals this, truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. There's a book that if you read through the Bible each year, you probably get to and you probably struggle through. It's called the book of Numbers. All right, you walk through that and you're like number after number after number. Okay, what do I need to know? In the midst of that great book are many different truths, but here's a little verse that applies to what we're talking about here this morning. It's Numbers 23, verse 19. It says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said and he, will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? What a great verse to write down and put on your refrigerator or to put on your mirror and to memorize. What a great reminder for us that, listen, as God speaks, he's the king. And what he says is going to happen. And so be reminded this morning that all scripture is truth and is God's plan. Number two is this. There's another horn. There's another horn. Guys, I love this. This was just crazy to me. I want to read for you, and you can turn there if you would, in Luke, just so you know that I'm not making it up or that I just didn't draw these verses up on the, on the screen. Luke chapter 1, all right, in verse 68 and 69. This is Zechariah's prophecy, all right? We know who Zechariah is. He's the father of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is born, all right? He's the one who's paving the way for the coming Messiah. Notice what Zechariah is saying to us, verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Guys, there's another horn. Like we got these two horns in chapter 7 and chapter 8, but there's one horn, and he's bringing salvation. Remember where Israel is in this time. 
Here's John the Baptist coming on the stage, the coming of, the, of Elijah. God has been silent for these 400 years, and this miraculous thing is taking place. And Zechariah is telling the people, listen, the horn of salvation is here. How awesome is that? There is another horn. His name is Jesus, and he offers salvation to you today. And for me too. It's by trusting that he took our sin upon his shoulders. He took the punishment of a perfect God for us. The punishment that you and I deserve for our sin. He died in our place. But he conquered sin and death. He didn't stay in the grave. He rose again three days later. Proving he is the horn of salvation. He is our salvation. Number three is this. Get up and keep serving the one king. Notice what happens with Daniel while he is struggling and he's sick. The last part of that verse is, Then I arose and I went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Daniel didn't understand it all, but he knew he had something he had to do. It wasn't about serving just the king. Daniel was all about serving one king. And he made that very clear in all that we read before. He wasn't going to bow to a statue. He wasn't going to stop praying, even though there were accusations that would lead to his throwing into the lion's den. No, Daniel was going to be about doing what God had placed him there to do. And part of that responsibility was helping the kings. For us today, we need to keep going. We need to, sometimes when we get discouraged and get down, know that that's not the end. We need to get up and keep serving the one true king. Because the truth is, the day of judgment is coming. And I want to be found, and I hope you want to be found, found faithfully working and serving that one king. Using our time the best that we can. It's like viewing a hurricane offshore. You can see it, you hear about it, you're like, okay, there's a hurricane coming. It's headed on this way. So what you want to do is you want to stay informed. You want to know where it's at. Is it coming towards us? When is it coming? How can I be best prepared? So as you're preparing and you're thinking about this hurricane... You're attentive to what is being said. We are living at the end of the age. I don't know how much longer we have. And if I were to stand up here and to tell you exactly, I hope you would all walk out of here because it would be wrong. As soon as this person puts a date and a time, don't expect it to happen then. You know why? Because the Bible says that no man knows. No man knows. But we do know this. There are signs like a puzzle. And when you see that picture on the box of what the puzzle is going to look like, and when you start seeing those pieces of the puzzle one at a time start going together, you start seeing that picture take place. That's what's happening before us. We see the day of judgment is coming quickly. How are you taking advantage of what God has called you to do? How are you taking advantage of who he wants you to be? Guys, thanks for your patience as we walk through this. It's not always easy, and I know I've gone a little bit over time. It's a lot. I hope it's an encouragement to you. I, I know I'm a little weird. I just get crazier and crazier. This excites me even more, and I hope it excites you too. We have an awesome God. This strengthens my faith. He's in charge, and I can trust him. You can trust him too. Would you pray with me? Lord, thanks so much for the opportunity to serve you, to love you. Lord, we read about the martyrdom of this mother and her seven boys. Lord, we know that there are many who have died for the sake of Christ. Lord, only you know what it's going to be like as we walk each day moving forward. 
maybe it will cost us our physical bodies. Maybe it won't. We don't know, but we have been told that you've called us to be faithful. So help us to love you. Help us to love you, not just with our words, not just with an emotional time, but Lord, that, that our hearts, our minds, our tongue, our thoughts, our emotions would all be in harmony, that we would be willing to follow you and to be obedient to you no matter what it costs. You've called us to be light and we see our world darkening, but we can take heart because Lord, you're in charge. You're the one who is in complete control. So help us to trust you, to trust you this day, and the weeks ahead, that we would be faithful servants of yours. We thank you for the life that you give us that no man can ever take away, the life that's found in Jesus Christ. What a privilege, Lord, to gather in this place, to sing your praises, to be reminded of the truths that you have showed us in your word. May we not just be hearers this day, but may we be doers. We pray this in the name of Jesus.